Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. First Corinthians chapter 9. As we continue our study through 1 Corinthians, we come this morning to verses 19 through 27. Please give your full attention to the word of God. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means, I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings." Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. There was an article in the New York Times recently that caught my attention by its title. The title was, Be Yourself is Terrible Advice. It was an article about the current fascination in our culture with authenticity. Authenticity is a core value of pop culture, and this article defines authenticity this way, erasing the gap between what you firmly believe inside and what you reveal to the outside world, or the choice to let your true selves be seen. In the article, it gives a quote of a survey that was done recently of 90 commencement speeches at universities. And it basically analyzed all those commencement speeches and boiled it down to the central theme for all of those those, uh, speeches and then ranked them according to how often that theme was the theme of of a speech. And in the top five, not surprising to any of us, that one of the top five themes of commencement speeches from universities is be true to yourself. Now, don't get me wrong, being honest and being real is a good thing. But I think in the culture, that message has become distorted into kind of a narcissistic exhibitionism, self-esteem on steroids. But I think this article that I read is actually maybe an indication that the message is getting a little thin these days because the writer goes on to say, for most people... Be yourself is actually terrible advice. If I can be authentic for a moment, nobody wants to see your true self. 
he went on to give an example of a writer who recently tried to be thoroughly authentic through a, a course of about two or three weeks of his life and talked about some of the ways in which he tried to display real authenticity of really showing his true self to the world. And so one of the things he did was actually go to one of his co-workers and said to her, boy, I'd love to sleep with you if I, my wife ever left me. And then he went home and told his teenage nanny the same thing. And then his in-laws came for a visit, and he told them, you know what, I find your conversation extremely boring. That's undiluted authenticity. The writer's conclusion was this, though. Listen to how this writer, I was curious where he was going with this. I was fascinated by his observation, but I was curious where he was going. This is where he concluded. He said, deceit makes our world go round. Without lies, marriages would crumble, workers would be fired, egos would be shattered, governments would collapse. That's the conclusion he came to. Lie. Hide your true self. Say, present whatever it is about yourself you need to present to get by in the world. And that's not biblical either. For Christians, in this passage, in 1 Corinthians 9, the Apostle Paul teaches us a much better way to live. Much better way to live than unadulterated authenticity or deceit and hypocrisy. He summarizes it in verse 22. He says, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I have become all things to all people. What he's saying there is that the Christian life is about dying to self for the sake of the gospel. When Christ saves you by grace, your life is no longer about exalting or exposing yourself. It's about exalting Christ and advancing the gospel. Now, when Paul says, I have become all things to all people, at first, when you read that statement, it sounds like he's advocating inauthenticity. Like he's telling us to be fake or wishy-washy or chameleon-like or manipulative. Where we go about changing our identity to fit our circumstances all the time, like a people pleaser. But that's not what he's saying. You see, you have to understand that for Paul, his life and his ministry weren't about his identity. That's the problem in this social media culture we live in. It's all about the identity that we're putting forth of ourselves. And his life was never about that. His life and his ministry was about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you're going to preach the gospel, the first thing you need to get across to people is that your true self, my true self, all of our true selves are despicable. That's where you start with the good news of the gospel. Paul never taught us to be true to ourselves. Paul never said in any of his epistles, be yourself. You want a sample of Paul's teaching about the self? This is what he says in Ephesians 4. He says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You see, when you come to Christ, it's no longer about who you are. Praise God it isn't because of who we used to be. It's about becoming like Christ. Paul says, I have died. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. It's about 
the identity of Christ. That's what my life is about now as a believer, as a disciple. We are all about striving to be like him. And so instead of telling believers to be yourself, Paul says, be like Christ, which means, in this passage, be a servant. How's that for an identity to strive for? Be a servant. You see, this whole chapter is about freedom. Paul's been talking about freedom from the very beginning. The very first statement in chapter 9 says, am I not free? But once having established the fact that in Christ we have been freed from all obligation in this world, we've been freed from the law, we've been freed from works, we've been freed in Christ, how are we then to live? And really the point of this chapter is, is we are to use the freedom that Christ has given us to become servants. How's that for a use of freedom? Because he says here in this section, verse 19, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant of all. Isn't that what Jesus Christ called us to? Matthew 20, verses 26 through 28. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's our calling, all of us. No matter what it looks like in your specific circumstances, your calling is to be a servant. And Paul talked about that at the beginning of the chapter. The first half of chapter 9 is about how, he, you remember he, last week we looked at this, that he spent long effort, strenuous effort to say, I have a right as a preacher of the gospel to have the church provide for my needs. But you remember last week the point wasn't to assert his right to have his needs met so that he could preach the gospel full time. His point was, when I came to you in Corinth, speaking to the Corinthian Christians, I laid down that right. I sacrificed that right. I gave up that right for the sake of the gospel. And he worked as a tent maker to provide for all his earthly material needs so that he could preach the gospel without being a burden, financial burden, to that new and growing church. That's being a servant. So here in the second half of the chapter, chapter, really what Paul's saying, he's, he's dealing with that issue of identity, but he's basically saying that he gives up his right to an identity in this world. He gives up that right for the sake of the gospel. Instead of expecting people, all the people around him, to adapt to his identity, what he's saying in this passage is that he was willing to adapt his identity in order to love his neighbor and advance the gospel. And that's a radical way to live in this culture. In the first section, beginning actually in verse 20 through verse 23, Paul talks about the two cultures that he was called to minister to. He says, first of all, to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. And then a little bit later, he says, to those outside the law, in other words, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, I became as one outside the law, that I might win those outside the law. You can't imagine, honestly, two cultures, Gentile culture, generally speaking, and Jewish culture, that were more radically different in Paul's day. I mean, imagine being called to take the gospel to both the Jews and the Gentiles, like Paul was. It'd almost be like being called to Palestine today and being called to take the gospel to the Jews of Israel and to the Palestinians at the same time. Can you imagine how difficult it would be to do that? 
And if Paul were to enter into those two different cultures and say, hey, I am who I am, you just need to adapt to me, he would have never gotten anywhere. In verse 22, he adds another important subculture that he was called to. He says, to the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. Now, he's not there talking about, if you, if you go to, always, when you're doing scripture study, you always go to the context to know what, who's he mean by the weak. Well, if you go to the, the closest immediate context, you'd go back to chapter 8, and where it talks about the weaker brother. But that can't be who Paul's talking about here, because he's talking about winning them to Christ. The weaker brother may be weak in his faith, but he still is a Christian. He's talking about people that aren't Christians. And who are the weak non-Christians he's referring to? We'll go farther back to chapters 1 and 2, where he talks about, how so many people in the church were weak in the eyes of the world. They were poor, financially poor, and considered such by the rich in this world. They were powerless by those who were powerful in this world, considered powerless by those who were powerful. They were commoners by those who were considered nobility in this world. They were the low class, the rejects, the outcasts, so many of them. And Paul says, I was called to the weak. That's not Paul's upbringing. That's not Paul's identity. But he was willing to become weak in order to reach the weak in society. That's another reason that he accepted. When he went to Corinth, that's another reason why he accepted the job of being a tent maker. A tent maker was a low-class trade. That meant he interacted with people in that class. He became weak in order to reach the weak in the eyes of this world. In the world of foreign missions, what this is called is called contextualization. Ed Stetzer is an, is an expert in missions, and he defines contextualization this way. He says, it's presenting the gospel in culturally relevant ways. Presenting the gospel in culturally relevant ways. And Paul was the first and the greatest among all contextualizers. Remember when he went on his missionary journeys, he said he was always sent to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And so look at his ministry to the Jewish people. How did he go about it? As a Jewish rabbi, he would always first visit the Jewish synagogue, if there was a synagogue in that city or that town. He would go as a visiting Jewish rabbi, and he would stand up and he would exposit the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures the authoritative word of God to the Jewish people. And he would show them in the scriptures how Jesus Christ was the Messiah promised and how he had come and been raised from the dead for their justification. But noted, remember what he did in Acts 16, thinking again of how he adapted to the Jewish culture. In Acts 16, this is the same man who said that if you are circumcised in order to be made righteous in the sight of God, then you have separated yourself from salvation. But when he was about to go on his second missionary journey, and he wanted to take Timothy, who had a Gentile father and a Jewish mother and had not been circumcised, when he wanted to take him with him on the journey, he had him circumcised. And it says in the text in Acts 16, it was because of the Jews who were in those places. It was so that Timothy could adapt to be able to bring the gospel to those who needed to hear it. In Acts 21, when he returned to Jerusalem and he heard from the leaders of the church that there were rumors around Jerusalem that he was out in, in the, the highways and byways telling Jewish people to stop keeping the law, Paul responded to that by going to the temple along with four other 
Jewish men and entered into a Nazarite vow, shaved off his hair and entered into a, a temporary Nazarite vow with these four men and paid for all their expenses to be able to go through the entire ritual. He didn't have to do that, but he did it for the sake of the gospel so that he could dispel the false rumors about his attitude towards the law. Among the Jews, he became as a Jew, so as not to put an obstacle in the way of Christ, according to verse 12. He became as a Jew among the Jews, so as not to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. But think about how he ministered among the Gentiles. Acts 17 is the classic example. He had the opportunity in Athens to go to Mars Hill and to stand among the intellectually elite of that day and declare to them, his teaching, the gospel. But if you analyze the speech that he gave on Mars Hill in Acts 17, he doesn't once quote scripture because he wasn't talking to the Jews. Instead, he actually quotes pagan prophets. There's two quotes in that speech from pagan prophets. Your poets say this, he says. One thing that says is he'd studied their culture. He'd read their prophets, their poets. He was able to quote them to them in the speech, to be able to reach them on their terms, to adapt to their culture. He doesn't appeal to scripture, but he appeals to creation. What's plainly obvious to anyone. And he appeals to the religious nature of all human beings. You see, these are arguments that are much more effective to Gentiles. If he had gone in there and quoted scripture, they would have dismissed him immediately. That's Paul living out what he's teaching us here. Preaching the gospel in culturally relevant ways. Studying the people that you've been called to reach. And all of you have been called to reach others with the gospel. It means studying them, knowing them, understanding them. So that you can communicate the truth of God's word to them in ways that they'll understand. Hudson Taylor is probably one of the greatest missionaries. Probably the pioneer of contextualization. Hudson Taylor was sent to China as a missionary in the mid to late 1800s, back when that was a closed country. I mean, you look at what's going on in China today. We have a lot of great debt of gratitude to owe to Hudson Taylor for the way he went in there and broke down the walls and broke down the cultural barriers and brought the gospel. But it's interesting how he did it. Because he first went into China just like any other Western missionary. And that's the problem with missions back in that day is too much missions was bringing the gospel into a, a foreign culture but also bringing western civilization into a foreign culture and sometimes it, missionaries got mixed up about which was most important hudson taylor went into that culture and he started traveling he did 18 preaching tours around china and almost completely failed in his in his mission had very little response matter of fact the people in the countryside of china called him that black devil they called him that because he wore a long black English overcoat. Well, if you know the history of Hudson Taylor, you know how he responded. He immediately got rid of the black overcoat and started wearing traditional Chinese clothes. Not only those traditional, intricately woven, beautiful Chinese clothes, not only that, but he shaved his forehead like a Chinese man and grew out his hair really long in the back in a ponytail, that, that braided ponytail because that was the hairstyle of the Chinese men. And lo and behold, and he also spent, if you know Hudson Taylor's life, he spent a long time studying the culture, the history. And he learned 
not just one language that was spoken in China, but all the languages and dialects spoken in China. He learned it all so that he could advance the gospel in China. And God blessed that in incredible ways. That's what Paul's talking about. That's proper contextualization. Genuine contextualization of the gospel isn't being fake. It's not being inauthentic. It's not being manipulative. It's loving your neighbor enough to identify with them so that you can effectively proclaim the truth of God's word to them. About 25 years ago, 24, 25 years ago, I moved to Philadelphia. I had grown up in western Pennsylvania. I was a diehard Pittsburgh Pirates fan. And I moved into enemy territory. And I proceeded to alienate all my family and my friends by becoming a Phillies fan. And I was accused of being a traitor, and I still am. Even around here, I'm still called a traitor because I root for both teams. <laughs> and I have to admit, part of it is just because I love baseball and I wanted to love my local team. But there was a contextualization purpose to it as well. Is that that's part. When I moved in there, I wanted to set some roots and I wanted to reach that culture with the gospel. And part of that meant embracing their baseball team, even their football team. And I did it not to be fake. Matter of fact, if, anybody, you, if you'd seen me in 2008 cheering the Phillies on to win the World Series in 2008, and I was down there, I was among that million, dollar, million people on, on Broad Street celebrating when they had the parade after they won the World Series. I was a, as much as passionate a Phillies fan as I ever was a Pirates fan. But it took time to get to that point. It took effort. It took study. It took overcoming my natural desires. It get, meant getting out of my comfort zone as a baseball fan. But I did it because I love the people. You see, that's what makes contextualization different from being inauthentic. Because if you love your neighbor, you love them enough to want to identify with them, to understand them, to reach them. You know what? I actually watch Fixer Upper now. I hate reality shows. I am not a home improvement guy. I don't even know which end of the hammer to use. That's not, you know. <laughs> but my wife started watching that show, and she loved it. It's one of her favorite shows. And I started watching it because I love my wife. And I want to identify with her. And lo and behold, after watching several dozen of the shows, I actually like the show now. But see, that's what loving your neighbor's about. It's not about asserting your identity. It's about being willing to adapt to the people you care about so that you can communicate well with them, so you can love them, so you can ultimately love them the best way you can possibly love them, which is to share Jesus with them. But there are limits to contextualization, and Paul alludes to them here. Contextualization, if you know anything about missions, it's a very touchy and tricky and landmine-filled subject. Because there are limits to contextualization, and Paul alludes to him. In verse 20, he says, To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law. That, what he puts in, in the English, they put parentheses around it. What he says in that parentheses is crucially important. He says, I am not under the law, and I am clear about that. That's part of my identity that I will not compromise. 
As Paul tried to win the Jews, he did, did not ever compromise the gospel. The word under the law is a phrase that Paul uses in his writings to refer to how the Jewish people tried to gain acceptance with God by keeping the law, the ceremonial laws and the moral laws. That by keeping those laws, they felt that they could gain acceptance with God. That's what Paul, that's what Paul means when he says under the law. And he says, I am not under the law and I will never teach living under the law. Because that's anti-gospel. Jesus Christ died to fulfill the ceremonial laws, the animal sacrifices, the priesthood, the temple, the rituals, all of that. He died as the ultimate high priest, the ultimate meeting place with God, the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. He shed his blood to pay for our sins. And so he did away with the ceremonial law. And he lived a perfect life, keeping the moral law to the smallest detail. And then he went to the cross and died on the cross as a substitute and bore the wrath of God for us. Even though he never broke any of God's law, we broke all of them, and yet he died in our place as our substitute and paid for our sins. That's the gospel that Paul preached, and he never compromised it. Paul may have kept the ceremonial Jewish laws even after they were fulfilled in Christ, Because there was nothing wrong with following those laws as long as they weren't the means of salvation to Paul, and they never were. Paul had Timothy circumcised so that the Jews would accept him so that they would hear the gospel. But if any of the Jews would have said, Paul, did you have Timothy circumcised because God wouldn't accept him if he wasn't? Paul would have adamantly, clearly, repeatedly say no. In verse 21, Paul says, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. And then again, the important phrase in between the, in the English, the the parentheses, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. So when Paul went to the Gentiles, he's going to people who didn't acknowledge the law of God. They knew nothing of the law of God. They didn't want to have anything to do with the law of God. They were outside the law of God. When Paul went to the Gentiles, he said, I adapted to their culture. As much as possible, I lived like they lived, I talked like they talked, I identified with their culture. But he had to be clear that Christianity is not a lawless faith. That the reason that Jesus kept the law for us and died to pay the the price of our breaking the law and was raised from the dead was so that he could recreate us, make us new creatures in Christ, so that we become law-keeping people. Not the ceremonial law, but the moral laws which revealed to us the will of God. You see, that's why we were saved, was to become like Christ, to become lawful people. And that's part of the gospel. And so Paul would have never compromised that. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And so we keep the commandments of Christ. We're under the law of Christ, which is the the revealed moral law of God in the word of God. We keep that not to be accepted by God because Jesus provided that for us already. But we keep it because we love Christ and we're so thankful for the grace that he's shown to us. The point I'm making is that contextualization cannot involve disobeying God's word or in any way modifying or changing the gospel. If that's what happens, it's no longer contextualization but compromise. 
There's been a recent controversy in missions around the world. If you know anything about, about the study of missions, it's particularly in regard to what's been going on in, in closed Muslim countries. It's called the insider movement. And what started happening in all the frustration of trying to reach Muslim cultures, missionaries started telling converts, those who they had led to believe in Christ as the true Messiah, started telling them, don't leave your family, your, your Muslim family. Of course, leaving the family often meant death for some of them. Don't leave your family. Stay in your family. Stay in your mosque. Stay under the teaching of your imam. Keep, keep following all the ways of your Muslim religion, but just add Jesus to it, basically. And in some cases, keep your allegiance to Christ as Lord's secret. It started out as a a desire for contextualization of the gospel, but it became something horribly different eventually. Where all all of a sudden you're not talking about evangelism, you're talking about syncretism. You're talking about taking two religions and combining them and you end up with something that has no gospel in it. Dave Garner uh, wrote most of a study committee paper uh, that was put out by the PCA a couple years ago. He's a Westminster professor. One quote I want to share with you. He says, accommodation and contextualization are not the same. Faithful contextualization begins with the gospel and then addresses the culture. Accommodation starts with the culture and seeks to fit in the gospel. When this critically important orientation gets muddled or reversed, contextualization quickly turns to compromise. Paul never compromised his message, but he understood that to bring that message into a culture that was different from his own, he was going to have to study that culture, understand that culture, and be able to communicate with that culture so that he could bring the truth of the scriptures and particularly the truth of the gospel message to those people in a way that they'd be willing to listen and that they'd be able to understand. And understanding that the Holy Spirit has to go before him to make all that possible. Well, that brings me to this last section. And I'm honestly, for years, looking at verses 24 through 27, you look at that part of the passage and you say, what does that have to do with the rest of it? It almost seems like Paul totally switches gears. I don't think so at all. Matter of fact, I think this is kind of a concluding statement to his whole section about laying down your rights and sacrificing and becoming a servant for the sake of others and for the sake of the gospel. I think this is his conclusion. He talks about winning. It's all about winning. The purpose of laying down your life and serving for the gospel is to win. And that's such an unusual word, isn't it? He talks about Winning the Jews, winning the Greeks, winning the the weak in society. I don't like that term for evangelism. It brings back memories of some Christians I knew early in my walk of faith where it almost seems like they were out like Indians gathering scalps. You know, how many conversions could they have? You know, how many people could they lead to the Lord? And they've got this kind of a weird competition thing. But that's not what Paul, that's not why Paul uses the word win. In verses 24 through 27, he builds on the concept of winning. He says, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. Now, you have to understand that in first century Corinth, sports metaphors were just as prevalent as they are in the 21st century America. They talked about sports metaphors all the time. That's the way even their philosophers spoke. Because sports were a big deal back then, just as they are now. And they're especially big deal in Corinth because Corinth was very close to the Ismithian Games. The Ismithian Games 
were second only to the Olympics as the greatest sporting event in the empire. And, in, and the Smithian Games were very much like the Olympian Games in the sense that they were made up of six different individual sports. Interesting they didn't use team sports back then, but they were all individual sports. On that list were wrestling, jumping, javelin, discus, boxing, and racing. And Paul chooses two of those, boxing and racing, and he uses them as metaphors for the Christian life. He feels it's very important that you look at your life as a boxing match or as a, as a runner running a race. He uses that imagery all the time. Matter of fact, as he reflects upon his whole life, his whole ministry in 2 Timothy chapter 4, listen to how he describes it. He says, beginning in verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award, me, award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to those who have loved his appearing. It was helpful. It's a very helpful metaphor to Paul to think of his life as a race. And the race was to strive for a prize, and the prize was the crown that the Lord would give him, this crown of righteousness. It's interesting, in verse 25, he says, they, speaking of athletes at the Smithian Games, they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. What he's referring to there, if you've ever seen any pictures from Roman Greek culture, they really highly prized these, these, as a matter of fact, some of the emperors wear these crowns, but they were like wreaths made out of plant life, they, greenery and plant life. Well, that's what they gave to the winners of the races and the boxing matches and the wrestling matches. That's what they give them. They give them these wreaths made out of plant life as a token. It'd be like the, the medal that they hang around the neck of Olympian athletes today. And Paul says, soon as the match is over, within hours, that wreath begins to wilt. And to him, it was such a powerful metaphor of earthly glory. Look at how fast it passes. These athletes trained for years gave everything they had. They laid it all in the field and they came back as victors and within hours their prize is already turning to dust. And it's still true today. I mean, look at what professional athletes go through their entire lives. They start from when they're young children, sacrificing time and effort and diet and, and hours and you know all the sacrifice and work really hard to win, to be the best at what they do. And just think about it. Do you know who won the Super Bowl in 2012? Does anybody know who won the, the Super Bowl in 2012? There aren't any New York Giant fans here then, because <laughs> only if it's your team do you really remember. But on that weekend, here in American society, don't we treat like Super Bowl championship as the end all of all life? I mean, that's the biggest news. It's the headline news the next day. Who won the Super Bowl? It's the epitome. That's what these guys make all those sacrifices for for decades is to be able to hold that Super Bowl trophy. But, you know, if your team didn't win it last year, I bet you don't know who won it last year either. That's how quickly earthly glory, glory goes by, and that's the point that Paul's making. That's what, you know, that's what earthly life is like. It all turns to dust. It all blows away. But Paul says in verse 23, here's his motto. He says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them, those who believe his message, the message of the gospel. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them and its blessings. You see, Paul had an eternal perspective. He didn't live for this life. He didn't live to exalt his identity in this world. He lived 
to share the gospel with others so that they together might share in the presence of the Almighty God and all the blessings of the eternal kingdom forever. There's something to get you out of bed in the morning. That's motivation. That's an eternal reward. Paul keeps pointing us back to that. If you have an eternal perspective and you have kingdom values, you're going to be willing to sacrifice your comfort, your culture, your identity. You'll sacrifice anything in order to advance the gospel and reach others for Christ. Paul calls this purpose-driven, focused living. It's not aimless running or boxing the air. But there's a cost to that kind of focus. There's a cost that must be paid, like an athlete, if you're ever going to see that reward. In verse 25, Paul says, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. In verse 27, he says, But I discipline my body and keep it under control. I mean, he's, being, he's using hyperbole here, but he really goes overboard to say it's going to cost. Literally, that, that second uh, phrase where he says, I discipline my body and keep it under control. Literally, what that says in the original Greek is, I give myself a black eye and make my body my slave for the sake of reaching others with the truth of the gospel. Do you remember that first Rocky movie, that great montage the inspiring music plays and he's running through the streets of Philadelphia and he's, he's doing the, the one-hand push-ups and, and he's uh, beaten on the, the sides of beef in the, in the meatpacking uh, place and he ends up running up all those steps to the top in front of the art museum. That's meant to be the classic picture to us of athletic commitment, discipline, paying the price for victory. And all I want to ask you this morning is, is that an image that reflects your spiritual life? Does your spiritual life exhibit that kind of sacrifice, that kind of discipline, that kind of putting aside your immediate physical material earthly needs for the sake of long-term eternal reward? Are you committed to the ministry? And you all have a ministry in your classroom, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your marketplace. Are you committed to victory as Christ defines it with that same kind of diligence? This whole section Really, all of chapter 9, even going back to chapter 8, it's all about dying to self, isn't it? That's kind of the theme of all the passages the last few weeks. Die to self for the sake of the gospel. I, I have to think about ministry that way. I've told many of you, I'm an introvert. I'm a loner. But yet I'm a shepherd. Christ has called me to pursue sheep, to be extremely relational. And I have to die to self every day in order to do what Christ has called me to do. But it's worth the reward. The reward is great. What is he asking you to die to in order to be more effective in your calling? We need to know the people that we're being called to reach. You need to be willing to lay down your identity to reach them if possible. Do this with some trepidation because it's like entering into a minefield, but Probably the biggest controversy in our culture, if you want to understand what's going on in our culture, one of the biggest controversies is all this debate between two phrases, black lives matter and all lives matter, or now we have blue lives matter. 
And we just have people throwing those slogans at each other and picking up sides and casting invectives against each other. And it all reminds me of an experience I had many years ago. My former church in Philadelphia, um, when we were between properties, we sold a property and relocated the ministry and bought another property. It took us 10 years to be able to be in our new facilities. During that 10 years, about half that time, we spent, uh, we had our worship services on Sunday morning and our classes in an educational building on the campus of, of Cheney University. And if you know anything about Cheney University, it's the oldest African-American university in the country. And we were a thoroughly white, middle-class Presbyterian congregation. And so I knew that this was going to be difficult to minister in that context. I knew that there were cultural barriers I was going to have to face. I got to know many of the administration, even the president, during that time. And as a result of working on those relationships, I was invited to come to the uh, Black History Month uh, banquet that they had in February. And I walked into this big banquet hall, and I was the only white person there. And I sat at the table, and everybody was gracious to me, kind, friendly. But then when the speakers got up to speak on the subject and the theme of black history, all of a sudden, I felt the most out of place I've ever been in my life because they started railing on with anger and hostility about what the white culture had done to the black culture. And not that I disagreed in principle with any of the things they were saying, but it was the attitude behind it that made me want to crawl under the table. And I admit it, I went home that night angry because everything, all the speeches talked about us and them, and I was them, and I was sitting there having to listen to it all. But I got home and I laid there in bed and I thought, you know what? We do the same thing in white culture. We talk the same way about them. And we're just as guilty. And it was a revelation to me. And it helped me to understand what Paul's saying here more. Is that I needed to study, I needed to understand, I needed to, to walk three miles in their shoes to understand and see it from their side. And I'll tell you, I have not posted a thing on Facebook or on social media anywhere about the whole black lives or all lives matter controversy because, let me say it this way, if you can summarize your understanding and your position on that issue with a slogan like that, then either you're a white person who doesn't know enough black people or you're a black person who doesn't know enough white people because racism is a huge, complicated, difficult issue that permeates all of life. But I'll tell you this, I do know that the only way out of the mess we're in is through advancing the gospel. Only the gospel treats all of us the same as sinners desperately in need of grace. But if we receive that grace, we all become children of God for eternity. That's the message that's going to turn this culture around. Paul says, all things to all people, that I may by all means save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Let's pray. Father, you have placed us in a culture that is increasingly difficult to relate to. But there was never any promise when we came to know Christ that our ministry would be easy and comfortable. Lord, I pray that you would continue to teach us through Paul's instruction here in 1 Corinthians what it means to die to self 
to lay down our rights and advance the gospel by any means. May we be as effective as individuals and may we be effective as a congregation. May we understand our culture by your grace. May we identify with our culture and as so far as the, as the word of God allows that we might effectively reach them and may Christ be glorified in us. We pray in Christ's name, amen.